Typhoon update for the Royal Air Force. Iraqis claim victory in Mosul, but at what civilian cost? Trump Jr. and the mysterious Russian lawyer. Whatever happened to the Wrens and Dunkirk, the movie? Was it really like that? Hello there, welcome to SITREP with me, Tim Cooper, standing in for Kate Jabot this week. And big news for the Royal Air Force this week. It's opened up its frontline combat units to women, following the Royal, Ar Royal Armoured Corps and Royal Marines' decisions to do the same. And the airborne RAF is to get new missile defence systems for the typhoons. All this as the RAF prepares to celebrate Trenchard 100. That's the 100th birthday of the Royal Air Force, born out of the Royal Flying Corps under the guidance of Air Marshal Trenchard, in 1918. BFBS reporter Charlotte Banks spoke to the Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, and asked him if he was confident taking the service into its next 100 years. Yes, I'm very confident. As you know, next year is our 100th anniversary. It just That will give us a great opportunity to commemorate uh, all that has gone in the past, our history, our ethos, our traditions. It's also a chance to celebrate um, what we do, what we achieve today, and the quality of our people today. And it also gives us the opportunity to inspire future generations to service, uh, service in the Royal Air Force. So we've had a great first 100 years, nearly, and I think we're going to have a great second 100 years as well. The maritime patrol aircraft, the P-8s, are due to arrive at Lossiemouth shortly. Given that Russia continues activity, how much will these new aircraft bolster the UK's defences? Well, the Maritime Patrol aircraft is just a hugely important capability with its anti-submarine warfare capability, also its ability to help protect our carriers and to provide uh, wider defence capabilities. So I'm really looking forward to the introduction to service of that capability. It's advancing well, the aircraft is great, we've had crews who've been training on that aircraft for a number of years. Uh, so I think it's an important capability be with us uh, in the not-too-distant future, uh, a great moment for the RAF. Turning to Op Shader now, the Iraqi Prime Minister has declared victory in Mosul and Raqqa is close itself to being rid of the so-called Islamic State. What does this mean for the RAF crews involved in Op Shader? Is this going to be a changing mission now or drawdown or what's the future for them? Well, I think it's a part of a continuous evolution. We've been involved in Operation Shader for nearly three years now, and the mission has changed constantly in that period. Uh, it's taken a huge amount of effort to achieve what has been uh, achieved in Mosul uh, with the air power in cooperation with the land forces. Uh, and uh, so we sh can uh, you know, recognise that tremendous achievement, but it's only one step along what is likely to be a long path uh, towards eventually defeating this violent extremist organisation. What I can look at from my perspective is how the RAF has successfully adapted as that conflict has uh, evolved over the last three years. I'm sure it will evolve further. I'm sure we will adapt to change and continue to be successful in it. Would you say Opshader has been a success? Well, I think we just need to look at what's actually been achieved so far. If we were three years ago looking at uh, Daesh, um, the, uh, the narrative was that they were at the gates of Baghdad holding large swathes of territory in Iraq and Syria, uh, and look where they are now, uh, on the back foot, uh, with us succeeding and driven into ever smaller uh, areas along the way. It's taking a lot of hard work and effort uh, on the, in the air and on the, uh, the ground, but is the operation a success? Well, I think we just need to look at the evidence to show that it is. 
How confident are you that enough was done during Obsheda to protect civilians on the ground? We put a tremendous amount of effort into minimising the risk of civilian casualties and that's been uh, very well reported, the care that we take and so I am utterly satisfied with the professionalism, the self-discipline uh, of our crews, in fact our whole targeting process to minimise to the absolute uh, best of our ability any risk uh, to non-combatants. There we go. That was the uh, Chief of the Air Staff, Air Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, talking with Charlotte Banks. Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst, is with me as ever in the uh, BFPS studio here. Christopher, Royal Air Force. We don't often hear from them on the programme. 100 years not out. What are the next 100 years? It sounds like an exciting time for them. It is an exciting time. The other thing we can always remember, uh, we're getting... You, you hear a lot of analysts saying now, of course, warfare is changing. After after the Cold War went, then we got into a totally different type of warfare. Um, but the truth is, if you look what the, the operations that are going on with the limited uh, equipment or, 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 or kit that the RAF has, it's doing the same sort of things. You know, coming back now to the maritime patrol aircraft, uh, sticking things in the water to listen to see whether any submarines are, are there. And so warfare actually does not change that much. Or, or the principles of what you've got to do. It's what you have to do it have with what you've got to do it with. Now, the other thing is, if you buy an aeroplane, it's going to be with it for 25, 30 years. And so the biggest problem the RAF has is anticipating the sort of equipment that it's going to need, let's say 10, 15, 20 years down the line. And that's what's happening at the moment. So we can think about drones, we can think about satellites, we can think about uh, uh, jamming, etc. And there's some new equipment coming in with anti-missile defences, which uh, for the typhoons at the moment. But the truth is, the basic platform is an aeroplane, still an aeroplane, and it may be we be moving towards the first generation of pilotless aircraft but we've been doing that for 25 years yes we have and that's the question is everyone keeps saying oh it's next generation or it's two generations on in your assessment briefly how far away is that being a realistic proposition for something like the royal air force well the drone is the first first really the drone is the is, is the first sort of form of pilotless aircraft but you use that with what you've got not necessary to replace and when you look more and more at this idea of um, operating, let's say, somebody in, in the Middle East and the sort of things that you're going to be doing, you may not be operating against a, a, a big, big state like Russia or whatever, but you're doing, you're using your aeroplane to do old-fashioned things. Mm. Uh, and I think that that was, we've got to, we've got to remember, the RAF will probably be doing it with more modern equipment, but some of that more modern equipment will be stuff that's being built now and it'll just be in a different environment with updates. And the other thing, of course, you know, the aircraft carriers that the uh, Air, Vice mm. Air Marshal was talking about. Aircraft carriers, what's the biggest thing for the aircraft carrier? Submarines. Yeah, it's the Royal Air Force. <laughs> the Royal Air Force will have half the planes that are aboard. It's where you fly Very from. True. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to the big operational story this week, and it's the Middle East, of course, and that's included the Royal Air Force, as we heard there, Opshader, and the apparent defeat of IS in Iraq's second city, Mosul. But with that, as predicted on this programme, have been accusations that airstrikes have resulted in thousands of civilian casualties. The Deputy Coalition Commander is General Rupert Jones, who, while accepting that there had been high casualties, has emphasised that airstrike operations included detailed planning to keep them at the lowest possible level. Well, let's talk to Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham. Uh, Professor Lucas, have we seen carpet bombing, or is it more realistic to believe that IS has used the civilian population as a shield in places like Mosul? 
I think we need to sweep away both of those as being at opposites, extremes of, of reality. Uh, certainly, the U.S.-led coalition, including British forces, did not go in to support the operation in Mosul to simply just obliterate everyone who was there, given the high number of civilians. On the other hand, uh, it is, I think, not being completely forthright to say every civilian that was killed was simply because they were held hostage by the Islamic State. The reality is, is that Mosul is a very densely populated area, that the nature of Islamic State rule meant that it was impossible for hundreds of thousands of people to get out of the city before the final offensive. And when you carry out air operations in a densely populated area, you don't just only hit the bad guys, you do hit the civilians. So I think a little bit of realism in some of the announcements coming out from the coalition, uh, not only about the nature of that warfare, but really talking about, with some realism about the figures, because we are probably talking about the thousands if you are talking about both the Iraq and Syrian theaters over a, a period of months. I, I think that would probably go down better, especially when you realize the next phase in Iraq is going to be a hearts and minds phase. Well, it might be a hearts and minds phase from the Western standpoint, but we are seeing with the Iraqis themselves, very similar to what happened back in 2003, revenge killing. She is taking over, going after Sunnis and, and that side of things. What should the West do about that? Should we try and step in and stop that? No, I don't think you can step in and stop that. And I think the post-2003 experience shows that when you try to impose whatever you think is order, whatever you think is the right system, that can go very badly wrong. We're at a very tense time where you are going to see people taking revenge and where you have to acknowledge that a lot of the forces involved in areas like Mosul and other Iraqi cities were not official Iraqi security forces. They were the so-called PMUs, effectively Shia militias many of whom were connect, connected with Iran. You have to build up a cross-sectarian army that Iraqis have faith in. That's the task given what had happened in 2014 with the collapse of Mosul. And now that you've regained it, this has to be an operation from the ground led by the Iraqi government, including its security forces, including Iraqis, and then supported by the West. But that will take time. And ultimately, yes, it, it does appear the sensible option of trying to bring a fractured country together. But in the interim, people are still suffering, just as they were under IS, but different people doing it. Is there any role the West can play in trying to protect innocent civilians? Well, certainly the question of rebuilding recovery assistance has got to be an international effort in support of the Iraqi government and authorities, which can't be part of just playing power politics. Uh, you can't just use that aid to say, look, we're doing it to push the Iranians back or we're doing it to push the Russians back. I think at the same time, what you have to do is, is be realistic here. Iraqis will be very wary to have about another descent into violence. Yet at the same time, most Iraqis see this moment, having gone through 2003, having gone through the Islamic State, look, this is our chance to show we can be a nation. And as much as you can support that idea that Iraq can be a nation, that it doesn't have to dissolve into factions, doesn't have to break up, then I think that's of benefit not only to Iraqis, but to the rest of us. Christopher Lee. Well, I was just thinking there, um, Scott, if you look at this in a slightly wider sense, for example, what's going on in Syria, and then you look at the separation of all the conflicts within those Iraq as well as Syria, you start going down the Euphrates, which is a natural barrier for everything that's going on. You find there are probably something like four, maybe five different states that are affected 
by the war the wars that are going on and then when you come back to the question is it up to the iraqis to sort of sort themselves with our help and how does that help come in the truth is that every single country in that region and that's running from saudi arabia arabia with its proxy war against iran for example there is a solution there is a, the only solution of what's going on in, in, in the Middle East. It's always as, almost as if we're going back to the Wahhabi invasion of Saudi Arabia in, what, 1900? I, I think you raise an interesting point in that you've got many multiple actors. But let me raise a key difference between Iraq and Syria. And that is, I think, that in Syria, you have a country which does not have a government with control over the country. Uh, you have to accept that this is effectively a de facto partition in Syria, which is different that even though you have an Iraqi government which has not functioned well, and Iraqi security forces which have not functioned well, they are there. And I think you still have to focus on that. You still have to realize that the Iranians are involved. You still have to realize that the question of Iraqi Kurdistan, which will probably have an independence referendum this autumn, is involved. I think you have to realize that, of course, the Saudis involved not only in this area but in Yemen have their own motives. But again, if you just simply pay geopolitics with all the outside actors and do not build from the ground up, we just have Groundhog's Day of doing this over and over again. Yeah, I mean, building from the ground up could bring about a different solution to the one of Iraq rebuilding itself. Is Iraq a viable country to go on from this point is the question, really, or would it not be preferable for it to break down into more manageable chunks like Kurdistan, for example? I think just I'm going to, it's going to sound like I'm punting the question but I think too often it's like those from outside Iraq give all their opinions on it and you really have to listen to Iraqis themselves and it is just my personal experience that we'll get to Kurdistan in a minute but in terms of the rest of Iraq most Iraqis want to see a state which is beyond the sectarian they want to see a state which is beyond the tribal they want to see a state in other words which is unitary I think Kurdistan is a special case I think you have to respect the fact that that may become independent or at least have greater autonomy, and that'll have to be sorted out, and that won't be easy. But again, I think to simply say, as some people did after 2003, oh, that's it, Iraq is three or four pieces, that makes it easier for us? That's not the question. Does it make it easier for the Iraqis? And you've got to start from that. Okay, Professor Scott Lucas, stay with us. We'll be back with you very shortly. Still to come on today's programme, 100 years of women in the Royal Navy, and Dunkirk comes to the big screen. Yes, I always think we should have a jingle for this bit. I could even sing it, but I'm not going to. It's this week's Trump question. And his son has landed, Mr President, in yet another pile of Russian investigations. This is the story. For 20 minutes, the son was talking to a female Russian lawyer about what he hoped was information that would help his father be president. He soon realised that she had nothing worthwhile to tell him. That's the simple version. Professor Scott Lucas, what do you think? Well, it's tempting to say that, uh, you know, we talked about a failed state, and we've also talked about Iraq as well in this episode. Um, The starting point here is that the highest levels of the Trump campaign, um, including his son, his son-in-law, his uh, campaign manager, met an envoy of the Russian government. That meeting was set up by a billionaire close to the Kremlin, and it was a meeting which was promising anti-Clinton material even if that anti-Clinton material was not delivered. It means that the Trump campaign was receptive to working with the Russians on that. 
And given the subsequent months of Russian hacking operations, Russian troll farms, the use of stolen information, it raises the question, even if it does not prove, that the Trump administration was at least complicit uh, with the Russians in affecting the 2016 election and that they have tried to cover up that complicity in recent months since Donald Trump became president. Christopher Lee, I mean, if if a person working for your campaign does something you don't like in days gone by, you can deny that person, push them out of the way. When it's your own son, that denial is not possible, is it? And, and we can't find it credible to believe that Mr Trump didn't know what his son was up to. And that's part of the problem here, isn't it? It's also part of the problem is that we make all sorts of assumptions that, uh, that say Mr. Trump is doing things which he shouldn't be doing, or we would, or, or the system would prefer he should he shouldn't do, as if he had the knowledge of the system, as if he had the the protocols at his fingertips, and as if he had a group of people who would say no, 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 you can't do that, uh, Mr. President or Mr. President-elect or, or whatever it happens to be, and I think that that is that is the, the distinction between. Certainly, the first term uh, uh, period of period of, uh, the, of the Trump presidency is that now he knows what he can do, but he still does what he wants to do. <laughs> whereas this, this earlier period, what is interesting, I mean, it's it's a naive thing that every single thing eventually has come back to Russia. Yeah, and I'm not being, you know, <laughs> not thinking you know the Russians are behind the whole thing there in the cupboard, but it keeps coming back to it. It keeps also coming back to this sort of system of, of incompetence. And if you stop for one moment and simply say, listen, he was talking to a lawyer, the whole thing got on to adoption, and he said, this is not for us, etc." you think, oh, forget it. But we don't forget it because it's Trump. Now transfer this viewpoint into the United States itself. And the big question is, is, is twofold. Do the same circumstances and emotions and, 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 and thoughts exist at the moment that existed that brought about the election of Mr. Trump. And secondly, um, what is America? How does America, the people that did vote to him, uh, how do they play this? Or are they saying, by the way, you said oh, there'd be more jobs for minors uh, or cab drivers or anybody. Is there two views, this European view, which is, you know, <laughs> we're full of rubbish ourselves. But uh, I think that's something which will must be decided because I'm already thinking of the next election, aren't you? Yes, and it's depressing me immensely. Um, Scott, how, how do you think it's going to play out with those sort of two views that Chris, Christopher has outlined there? Well, I, I think there are a minority of Americans, and I stress the word minority, who if Donald Trump asked him to drink poison and told him it was a fine French wine, they say, mmm, that sure tastes good, Mr. President. My relatives are among that minority. I think the question of legitimacy that Christopher raises, though, I don't actually split it into before and after the inauguration. Let me explain why. The fact of the matter is, is that Donald Trump has always run uh, his campaign, his presidency, like a business. And he's always bragged in that business that he was always well-informed by his family, sons, daughter, son-in-law, chief advisors. Now, on this one occasion now, the White House is putting up the firewall that he had no clue, no clue about this meeting with the Russians, or therefore the subsequent months of the anti-Clinton information being spread, despite the fact that in July, Donald Trump invited the Russians to hack computers in the United States. That question of legitimacy spills over into after he becomes president, because as long as you have this issue running, can you really see the president being effective, say, on health care, mm. or the economy, or taxes, or indeed alliance politics? When someone like an Angela Merkel, or our own prime minister, 
deals with Mr. Trump, can they separate dealing with that man on the issues of the day from that background that he may have gotten his office because of Russian interference? I suspect they will find it quite hard to do that. We've got to move on, I'm afraid, but Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today on SITREP. It's been very, very interesting indeed. Now, big event at Greenwich uh, this weekend. It's 100 years since the formation of the Women's Royal Naval Service, the Wrens. The Wrens no longer exist, and any woman now joining the Royal Navy joins in the same way as a man. But what was so special about the Wrens, and why did they last for so long? Well, joining us now on the line is Commander Jane Allen from Royal Navy H. Q fleet, as I call it, in Portsmouth, who's overseeing the commemorations. Are you over there on uh, Whale Island, Jane? I am this afternoon, yes, that's correct. Good stuff. You've got a great view of the fleet in harbour there. But uh, if the Wrens were still around, we'd be calling you Chief Officer and not Commander, wouldn't we? Things have changed. Things have changed. Um, it's quite a long while ago now, as you know. It's 1990 uh, when women went to sea and when 1993 when the Wrens were disbanded. So that is quite a while ago. But yes, I would have been a chief officer. And indeed, I did serve as a second officer and a first officer. So, I mean, are you still one of the, the people still in the Royal Navy that are sort of non-seagoing? Because that used to be the case with Wrens. I, uh, they certainly were. But of course, after 1990, that... The, the women that were serving at the time could say whether they wished to be seagoing or not. And then after that, later that year, it became a condition of service that anyone joining the Royal Navy would be liable for sea service, just like the man. Yes, I remember quite vividly back in 2009, I went uh, to sea for a, a week or so, and it was a lady escorting me. It was her first time at sea, and she's been in 20 years. <laughs> it really does show how things have changed. But what, why did it come to an end? I think there's a, a number of reasons. First of all, you know, employment patterns have changed, and I'm not just talking about in the military, but in civilian life, and therefore men were choosing to do different things, as were women. Um, so employment patterns changed. Women wanted that opportunity, equal opportunities was beginning to come in, and uh, many people, and like myself, I'd always wanted to go to sea, but hadn't. Um, so there was an employment pattern. Some of the manning of the ships, they realised because employment patterns had changed that maybe some of the men were going to go off to do other things. Why not give the women a chance? Because they proved themselves so ably before, uh, in, you know, many, many times in different roles, but had shown that they can do as well as men. There was an awful brouhaha when Wren's female naval personnel first went to sea, but you go on a ship now, you don't even notice. And that has shown, really, how society, but also the Royal Navy, has completely transitioned over the last 20 years or so. It's transitioned, and just to say, as you know, it's the centenary year this year. It's been fascinating talking to some young sailors. I took two youngsters last week, they're about 25, up to the National Memorial Arboretum. They had no idea, until we sat and chat chatted with them, that things had been any different. To them, they've joined the Royal Navy, and they go to sea. And they were quite staggered to sit down with some of the elderly veterans and learn how it had been before. Well, it's great that youngsters just accept and think the way it is is the way it's always been, but we shouldn't forget the Wrens because they did play an important part in the, in the Royal Navy. You mentioned the event there at the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire, but also a big event in, in Greenwich taking place. Tell us a little of that, Jane. Greenwich, as we all know, has um, been held in the Navy's heart for about 400 years. It's very, been very special and it was the training establishment for Wren's officers for a long time, and thousands of women were trained there. And it wasn't just for officers, of course, Wren ratings went there as well to help and serve. And Greenwich has been chosen as the reception area for the London reception to celebrate Wren's 100. So there are various events taking place around the country this year, and Greenwich was one of the ones that the Royal Navy said it would support. 
and that's what's happening this weekend. It's, it's said to be a great event. If there's one thing that it would be great for people to take away in this centenary year for the Wrens about what they have contributed to the Royal Navy all, over all those years, what would you like it to be, Jane? I think it's not just one thing. I th- it started right from 1917, and for every Wren that served, they all had their special moment, but I, it is all about gradually they were women have been accepted the opportunities that they didn't have they've gone over a barrier over another barrier and they've achieved so much and it's all about celebrating but recognizing the differences and today's women are not celebrating about being different they're celebrating about being allowed to do the same job and do it as well as the men absolutely right commander jane allen from portsmouth thanks for talking to us today Call went out. We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. What about? He's on me. I'm on him. And that is the latest World War II epic movie, The Sounds from It at Least. And it premieres tonight. Dunkirk is the story of Britain's retreat in the early days of the Second World War from fighting in continental Europe. The British Expeditionary Force, BEF, were dragged off the beaches in ships big and small. Dunkirk was a success. The reason for Dunkirk was a failure of military thinking, driven by political demands for victories. Christopher Lee, uh, on the ground, Dunkirk saw a lot of British personnel being forced into a corner of France by the advancing army. It was a disaster, but we view it as a success. Why is that? Um, because that's because you and I happen to be British. I mean, that's the way we do things, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've sat through too many test matches at Lords when I saw England lose, but the ring spinner was actually rather good. Um, let's put this in context. In September 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Uh, There's lots of political effort to stop the invasion in the first place, but it happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the the British said, "Okay, we must put together an army, get it over into continental Europe as quickly as possible. And so what they did, they put together the uh, thing called the British Expeditionary Force. And it went, still with the thinking of 1914, 1918, that this is what you could do. Then we jump forward, we jump forward to 1940, uh, and the Germans are advancing, three panzer divisions advancing through the Ardennes, and they're basically kicking the British and the French and what was left of the Belgians uh, into oblivion. General Gort, who was commanding the British Expeditionary Force, 
said we fall back on Dunkirk. Mm. That beach, that harbour is the only way we're going to get back. Uh, and there was this whole period um, when we thought it'll not be done. Yeah. 28th of May to the 31st of May. And on that first day, they called up ships from all over the place, 800 boats, small boats, almost skiffs. Um, on that first day, they got 7,500 back. At the end of it, the first end of the three days, there were 380,000 people evacuated off the beaches. Um, and 68,000 didn't get back. Some of them, their bodies were brought back, but 68,000 uh, were also killed. The lesson of it is that you, whatever you think of yourself, and however grand you are, you do not win wars by knowing how to evacuate your army. Absolutely right. And that film, out tonight, premiered tonight, and we'll no doubt talk about it more as we go on. But that's it for today. Thank you very much indeed uh, for listening to SITREP. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. Back to normal next week. Kate's here, but from me, Tim Cooper, and the entire team here, thank you so much indeed for listening. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.